This episode is dedicated to Te Montes, Robert Williamson and Livano for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight hey. Study. For this fight study, we have a special announcement. Since we've had Coach Jason Sargas on the show so many times, we decided just to make him a co-host. So welcome to the team, Jason. Sam, thank you so much for having me. I've been hoping hoping to be a part of this thing. (laughs) So we have a lot of fights to cover for today. So let's first go over some results, starting with boxing, and then we'll do the breakdown later. So first of all, we had Vasily Lomachenko beating Richard Comey by unanimous decision for the vacant WBO Intercontinental Lightweight title. Next, we had Nonito Donaire beating Raymart Gabalio by knockout in round four to retain his WBC bantamweight title. We had junior welterweight prospect Brandon Lee continuing his 24-fight unbeaten streak with a knockout of Juan Geraldez in the seventh round. He now has 22 knockouts on his record. Now let's go over the results for UFC 269. It was a night of upsets. Undisputed lightweight champion Charles Oliveira retained his title against former interim champ Dustin Poirier by rear naked choke in round three. Challenger Juliana Pena beat the GOAT Amanda Nunes for the women's bantamweight title. Similar to Oliveira, she was the underdog. She was dropped several times in round one. Then she rallied back and finished the fight by rear naked choke in round two. At welterweight, Jeff Neal beat Santiago Ponzinibbio by split decision in a very close fight. At flyweight, Kai Kara France defeated former bantamweight champ Cody Garbrandt by TKO in round one in Garbrandt's flyweight debut. At bantamweight, Sean O'Malley beat Rallian Paiva by TKO in round one putting O'Malley on a three-fight winning streak. In the prelims, we had Josh Emmett beating Dan Ige, Dominic Cruz beating Pedro Munoz, Tai Tuivasa beating Augusto Sakai, Bruno Silva beating Jordan Wright, Andre Muniz beating Eric Anders, Aaron Blanchfield beating Miranda Maverick, Ryan Hall beating Derek Minner, Tony Kelly beating Randy Costa, and Jillian Robertson beating Priscilla Cachuera. So we can't go over every one of these fights, so let's just go over the most interesting ones, starting with the main event, Charles Oliveira versus Dustin Poirier. Now we discussed what it would look like when we saw someone already in their peak with Dustin Poirier and in someone coming into their peak with Oliveira in our previous preview. We already know where Poirier is, but we didn't know where Oliveira was now until this fight. Let me first mention this is the first fight I kept switching who I rooted for based on who was winning. Both fighters do a lot of work for their communities and Poirier even donated to support Oliveira's favela projects, which made this fight even more magical. Break down this fight for us, Jason. Well, I like the way you started it off. I mean, first things first, it was a battle with the good guys. I mean, there was was no, no villain. There was no, no feud, no backstory, no beef. 
Uh, and it was it was real easy to root for both just because of the the character of each individual. You know, but uh, I think before we even break down the fight, we got to give a little credit to Oliveira's maturity and resolve as a fighter. And it's probably time we put the quitter narrative to bed. I mean, what is the man hasn't lost since 2017 and he's seen more than his fair share of adversity in those fights. He's been knocked down a ton. Uh, what Tamer Chandler, maybe t- Chandler and what twice in the Poye fight. So it's not like, it's not like he's not getting hit and you know, his, the, the, the quitting narrative is it's a speeding ticket from four years ago. And the only, only the insurance company gives a shit about that. So maybe it's time for the rest of us to, I mean, does anyone want to be the insurance company? Uh, let's look at let's look at the man's driving record since because it's been pretty impressive since 2017 you defined it best when you said really that was about cardio and it looks like he fixed a lot of his cardio issues yeah he learned to pace himself and he learned to recover both like cardio wise and uh, as a matter of durability just giving himself some time and some distance and even when he does get dropped he's real good about going directly to up kicks or scooting a little bit and making sure he doesn't get hit with any follow-up shots immediately. He sort of learned the ability to adapt and recover. And he learned like he learned how to take damage and continue. So, you know, it's odd because I always refer to Oliveira as like a guy who's been, you know, still young and has been around forever. But like he and Poya are the same age, I think, right? Both are 32. And uh, they're both what? Oliveira has 40 fights now and uh, we think of uh, Poye as more of the veteran, but he's only got 35 fights. So, I mean, it's uh, it, it, it was a, a great fight on paper. It delivered the goods, and uh, it was one of the, the more enjoyable fights that I've seen in a while. Again, it's easy to root for both guys, but to see the maturity and evolution in Oliveira's game, um, coupled with, uh, yeah, Poirier's been the man, other than uh, other than Khabib, and I wanted to see how it play how it would play out, and it was as as entertaining and as difficult to call as as our our uh, previous discussion on it, like where you and I were both wavering back and forth. Yeah, it was one of those fights that did go back and forth immediately, and if you were saying Oliveira was going to run away with this thing in the first couple minutes of the fight, you were a little concerned. You, you would have to be. Breaking down the fight, I thought like when you walk, watch the two walk out um, in the intro. I thought Oliveira looked uh, a little, a little more composed, a little more comfortable and confident relative to Poirier. I mean, just based on body language alone, that was one of the first things that I noticed. And I think uh, a comfortable and confident Charles Oliveira is going to be the one of the best fighters on the planet. So um, that. That was something that I noticed right off the bat. But to Poirier's credit, I mean, he always rises to the occasion. And if he did seem even slightly uncomfortable, what he found the the straight left and he punched around Oliveira's guard to drop him a couple times in that first round. But if you watch, if you watch what what Oliveira was able to do with um, finding those shots to the body, staying committed, and those straight shots, whether it was the right hand. Or that the front kick right up the middle, they served as rhythm disruptors 
for uh, for Oliveira and didn't allow Poye to come back with those immediate counters and and work in distance where he's an excellent counter puncher, you know, fighting out of that that shell position. Um, yeah, you saw Oliveira sort of take that that ability to fight at that range away from him and com- committed to the body early. And that's something I thought um, Conor McGregor should have, or at least showed a little bit in that uh, the fight where he broke his leg. And maybe, maybe Oliveira just continued with what he saw working and some vulnerabilities. Because if you look at if you look at Poirier's stance, right, he shifts, which is going to cause um, a squaring of the hips. But he has a tendency to fight square, sort of like in that 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 pre-shift mode. Um, and there's also a vulnerability to the body with his shell style of defense. And I thought Oliver did a good job of exploiting that. To me, it looked like high level MMA boxing versus high level Muay Thai plus high level MMA. So what I mean by that is Poirier's boxing is excellent for MMA, whereas Oliver's Muay Thai look good, not only for MMA, but good for pro Muay Thai. And then couple that with his variety and mixing of all the aspects of MMA while never overextending himself. And it seemed like after a while, that's where the momentum was shifting and it started building into a snowball. And then on top of that, his composure leveled up even more so than his fight against Chandler. And to your point about Oliveira staying on task, even when he got dropped, I think part of his confidence came from that he was never confused or lost, meaning like, oh, what do I do now? He never looked like he was trying to figure out what he was supposed to do. He's like, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do once I get up. We game planned every minutia of this fight. And so a lot of it, it looked like other than his ground fighting, which is very free flowing and he could just kind of move based on how his opponents are moving, everything before then, it looked like he had every detail planned out and he was just executing according to plan. No, I agree. I agree completely. He stayed on task and he committed to that game plan. And when he was able to keep uh, Poye on the end of his punches, especially he got real long with that right hand and he landed it a lot, uh, Oliveira did. And when when Dustin would give ground, uh, Dobronx would just sort of punch him into kick range. And then whenever Poye tried to make up that ground, he would snap out either a straight right hand or a, a, a front kick to the body. And he sort of kept way off balance and didn't allow him to rebound where like, if you get into a, a pissing contest with, with Dustin Poirier, where you go, he goes, you go, he goes, like he's great at that. And he'll make, he'll make you pay. And I think Oliveira just either stuck a, a follow-up right hand uh, or a front kick that started to at least, and I pointed out towards the end of the first round, I mean, this is my opinion. Even though, even though Oliveira was dropped twice, from a coaching a coaching perspective, I would rather have Oliveira come the end of that first round than Poirier going into the second. Explain that. Well, if you watched from like the fifty second point on, I sent you that that clip of just a few seconds. Um, I think from like one eleven to fifty seconds or so, um, he sta- he staggers Poirier. Um, like a, a three, two, uh, and then another three or a three, two snaps that right front kick. And then another three 
he's starting to find his range and he's already tasted some of the the he's eaten some of the best shots that that Poirier can throw he he I mean he he got rocked with a, a left a straight left down the middle and he got tagged with that right hook and Oliveira ate it I mean he didn't eat it he got dropped and he got back up and he continued to fight but he stayed on task and he was landing those shots to the body and I think Oliveira sensed that hey if the head's not there if I punch him out of range uh, the body's going to be there. And he's he's a pretty he's a pretty long fighter at five ten five eleven at one hundred fifty five pounds, and uh, he was able to he was able to touch him and keep him off balance, and those body shots and it was it was strange because even the the UFC commentary was so geared towards the power of Poirier and they even put up the statistic of how many headshots Poirier landed on Oliveira but they completely ignored Oliveira's work to the body, which really told the tale of the fight. And I see a bunch of highlights that people are putting together, the the body work that Oliveira did. And he was he was breaking down. He really was. He was investing in the the body shots early, poking holes in that gas tank, and then opening up some vulnerabilities come the second and the third. Now tell me about that left hook of Oliveira, because at this point it's patented the way he catches people and it's so clean. And it's not like one of those overreaching, long, loopy left hooks. It's just nice and tight. And he finds them there while he still maintains his posture, right? And Poirier is somebody who's known for throwing great hooks. So how was he catching him with that left hook? Well, he was able to adjust his trajectory on it in real time. And sometimes he would throw it super short and straight across and catch Poirier on the chin. Or if Poirier ducked it, he would turn into a little bit of a collar tie, a clinch, and he would look like he would look for that right uppercut. And I don't I I know Poirier said that he didn't find Oliveira to be like crazy strong, but I think he was he was moved a little bit by how how physically strong a guy most consider skinny who is no longer that skinny for the weight class. But I think he's kind of grown Oliveira's grown into to the weight class and become a bit of a, a physical force there as well. But Whenever Oliveira would throw that left hook, he would look for the right uppercut on it. And Poirier made some great reads. I'd touch him upstairs and then do a little drop, expecting to, to, to bait that left hook uppercut combination. And then Poirier would hit that little drop two, three, where he would throw that straight left and he put the right hook behind it. And Poirier was, was doing some really good things. He tagged Oliveira early, but Oliveira made adjustments as well. And I think that, that that's something that... I I didn't know that I could trust Oliveira to continue to do that under duress, even though he's proved me wrong multiple times. I'm that <laughs> asshole, right? I've seen it, um, I've analyzed it, and then and I I didn't I didn't believe what I saw. I was, I was that kind of denier. But watching him do it against Poirier, and that's why I was so because I was I was close to being a full believer the last time we spoke, and 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 Oliveira. He, he does some really good things. It, even when P- Poirier had that that shell guard with that high right elbow, Oliveira was still able to punch around it. And he continued to a secondary and tertiary shots, and he kept his feet moving. And for a guy that fights as upright as he does, can find a short left hook without overextending himself or opening himself to too much counter offense. To your earlier point about breaking his rhythm, you think about the longest move you have as a Muay Thai fighter and somebody long and lanky like Oliveira, which is his teep, right? 
And then you think about his shortest range weapons like knees or hooks, right? Especially his left hook. So it was an interesting combo to see him go back and forth between the left hook and the lead teep, right? Where he would work him to the body with the teep and then hit him with the left hook. It was like when Poirier was breaking away, he kicked him. When he was coming back in, he kicked him again, which made him want to like, you know, really drive in to get past that kick. Then he hit him with the hook. Or as he was breaking off, he hit him with the hook. And then as he was going away, he hit him with the teeth. It was a clever use of long range and short range to kind of push Poirier into the ranges that he wanted him to be in. And also to break up Poirier's combo where, like you said, Poirier is most dangerous where it's like, you go, I go, you go, I go. Where Oliveira would put a little period in between these exchanges with that kick and just disrupt it. Not just the flow, but also the range. Oh, for sure. It was it was outstanding, an outstanding pairing by, by Dobrons. He did a, a good job of, if he was in kick range, he was going to kick him. If he would punch him into kick range, he would finish with a, a kick. And you know, Poye is so tough that when he eats one, he's going to step back in. Yes. Right? You know, you, you know he's going to. And so uh, Oliveira didn't let him get back in it and find his rhythm and reset. He would touch him with either a long right hand. And if uh, Poye tried to crash that distance, well, then you saw some knees and some elbows. And that's, that's another point. Like Right off the bat, whenever uh, Oliveira did that little hand trap, hand parry, the hand fight, and he threw that elbow off of it, he did a good job of breaking down that distance, landing that elbow, and staying to the outside of Poye's lead foot. But Poye still found that straight left hand and tagged him. I think he just dropped him in that sequence um, shortly after. So it was like, you do something really good, then I do something really good, and then you score, and then I drop you. And now we now we have ourselves a fucking fight here. And that's that's how it started, and that's really how it played out. I mean, the, the grappling advantage by Oliveira was really impressive, and uh, some of the I guess the lack of urgency from Dustin comes from the fact that he didn't want to, I guess, put himself in panic mode and make some of the mistakes. But what is that? What's this? How's the saying go? Um, paralysis by analysis. You start to overanalyze some of those situations and don't react quickly enough against a grapper like Oliveira. Well, you're going to be there for a while, or at least until he submits you. And that's, that's how it played out. The biggest thing I was wrong about was on the ground. I said, no Bronx was better, but I didn't think he was that much better. Whereas in this fight, no, it was night and day. Like, Do Bronx was way better on the ground than Dustin Poirier, who Poirier is also a black belt and who's also got a bunch of submissions on his record. But yeah, I, I didn't know Do Bronx's ground was that good because the way he beat a lot of other guys like Tony Ferguson, yeah, but it looked like a Tony Ferguson who was washed anyway. We didn't know because the people he was fighting, they seemed like they were on their decline anyway. So it's hard to judge. Whereas with Poirier, then you really saw, no, no, this guy is light years ahead than most of the other fighters in the UFC as far as their ability on the ground. Well, it's, it's the maturity of all that cultivated talent that we spoke on when he was 21 years old and we watched his, his career unfold and you saw some of his uh, I guess failure to achieve at times, and that, and now it's a culmination of 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 all that talent and ability unfolding, and you're seeing it against someone like Poirier, who at 32 years old 
is still in his relative prime, had uh, you know, two dominant performances over Conor McGregor. You know, you, you, you see what he did against Eddie Alvarez, Max Holloway, Justin Gagey. Um, and to see um, Oliveira come out the way he did. And, you know, even with some of his vulnerabilities, he's a guy that gets hit a lot, but it's, and he, and he gets hit, Oliveira gets hit flush, but it's his ability to, I don't know, sort of reprogram his brain, take a second, and like, like the little R2D2 robot sticks the, the, the little, the little rod in his head and just fixes him like in real time. And then he makes those adjustments and he's okay. There is no panic. There is no, there's no, oh shit moment. There is, I'm back in my feet or I'm grappling or if he's, if he's up kicking when he gets back to his feet, his hands are high. He's working at distance until he gets some of the cobwebs out or clears the blood from his nose. Um, and he continues with the game plan, which is, you know, is a testament to what you said. He continues with that game plan, being able to, to do that even under duress and even when it hasn't gone exactly as you would hope is a, a you know, it's a, a testament to his commitment to his team and his team's commitment to him. Not only getting dropped and how he recovers now, but he used to also get submitted. He set the record for submissions, but he also gets submitted. And then against Chandler in a tight choke, you could have imagined a past Oliveira just getting submitted then. So just the way he handles getting dropped, he handles it much better. The same thing with submissions. When you think you got him in a submission now, he will work his way out. So it's both of those things. The way he shows composure after getting dropped is also the same composure now when you try to get him in a submission. He's not going to go out that easy anymore. Well, it becomes a matter of confidence and experience. And his experience in surviving those situations has just grown his confidence. And, and you see that with him in the fights where he's faced some adversity. I mean, he got tagged by Tamer. He, he beat Kevin Lee soundly, but uh, Kevin Lee is about as explosive for two or three minutes as you're going to get, except for maybe Michael Chandler, who's incredibly explosive for those two or three minutes. So you've been in there, he's been in there with aggressive, athletic, explosive wrestler, uh, puncher hybrid. And then you got Tony Ferguson, who I don't even know what you would call his style, but I mean, you know, it's going to be offensive and in your face. Um, even a washed version of that. Well, I think a lot of people wondered if, if Oliveira was going to be able to handle the pressure and time and time again, since 2017, he, he has in 2017 seems so long ago. So maybe it's time we start to, to forgive and, Maybe forget some of those past performances and just move move off of that narrative. But I, it was tough for me too. I can't extricate my mind from it because that's what we grew up. We, he was born of the UFC and continued to grow over the last decade in under the UFC banner. So it's part of the narrative, at least at least as far as we know. But I think I think he deserves for that to be put to bed. Now, something we talked about off air was his vision problems. We know he wears thick glasses. And even uh, after the fight, we saw him in a state of panic when a fan grabbed his glasses and he was pleading with them to give it back because he can't see without him. So something we were discussing is how he's adapted his style around that. And maybe part of why he gets hit with certain shots is because he really can't see those shots coming. And that's why he has to rely on you know, having good posture and a high guard to kind of use his forearms as feelers to kind of see and feel 
the the shots coming right oh exactly and you made me have to delete a bunch of my notes on on his lack of defensive head movement because when you pointed when you sent me that video he was panicked and that is that's as everything to do with i'm blind at this point i need it and to go in there and fight that way you know i think there's a commitment to a game plan there's some um some some excellent anticipation and just the ability to sort of like read and and prepare uh that that he does some stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we don't even know but like he finds uh, a short left hook in that that right uppercut and those are punches that are difficult to land with a lack of depth perception so when i talk about i mean and, and a lot of those both those shots you can find a nice right uppercut off a slip to the outside twist in the hips and come right back up and you can also find that left hook um, either with an inside slip or uh, going uppercut hook, but there, I would think that there is a depth perception component to that, and those two punches are money for him, and and he does it with a, a seeming lack of depth perception, which I believe, and this is my theory based on talking to you, why you don't get that that greater head movement or consistent head movement because when you squint at something, you don't move your head a lot, you plant your head and you, you stop moving so that you can get greater focus so i think there's a reason why he may be a little more upright and a, a little more focused on center and i believe it's because he probably has to be visually yeah i think i talked to you about how instead of head movement as he's coming forward he tilts his head left and right kind of like a velociraptor where he, he's like looking out of one eye looking out of the other eye looking out of one eye looking out of the other eye I always thought it was just kind of a tick or a feint, but now I'm wondering if it's like for him to try to cheat depth perception by kind of changing his dominant eye, you know, back and forth to get a sense of like how far his opponent is, where their opponent is, and also just like kind of training himself to punch where he thinks his opponent is going to end up rather than looking and punching there. Anticipating their distance, right? And that's huge. And he's become, he's become an exceptionally accurate puncher. Um, and but but the the stuff that is more of a feel thing he tends to excel at as well and that is well obviously the grappling which is very tactile but the elbows and the knees the close quarter stuff where he's he's finding the nice like playing with that hand fighting that hand trap finding an elbow or crashing in with an elbow and then twisting that hips and coming off with a different angle with a long right hand and if you try to break down that distance then he's either hitting you with another elbow or kneeing you to the body that's 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 a feel thing that's very tactile He's, and he's excellent there. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Now let's talk about possibly the biggest upset in women's MMA of all time, Pena beating Nunez. What happened, Jason? Wow, um, Amanda Nunez basically fell apart. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Juliana Pena, but it seemed like Nunez just just completely fell apart in that second round. She looked looked solid at the very beginning, but even there's only so many times you can just windmill effect that overhand right and expect it to have i mean you're a championship level fighter 
or you're a champion, that means you're going to be fighting championship level opposition. I know, and I don't want to get too much heat for saying this, that there's a ton of depth in women's MMA at 135 pounds, but it's there's there's still some skill there, and you have to fight championship caliber opposition with championship shit, and she didn't. And I hate seeing people win doing bad shit. And when she started to, and then started to gasp, like I know the narrative is going to be that like she's had COVID uh, and um, the going up to 145 back down, but she's been dominant for a long time. And when, when she's looked great, she's done great stuff. Sometimes she's just looked so physically overwhelming that like she doesn't need to have grade A technique. But you want to stay champion, you have to do championship shit. And and she didn't. And we can we can blame it on cardio. But if her if her t- technique is that abysmal, as bad as it was in the second round, then like short of short of injury, I don't understand why you don't have any sort of defensive awareness and ability to react to a jab unless you have hit the wall so thoroughly that uh, physiologically you just you just can't go anymore. And if that's the case, then I wonder if it's COVID. I wonder if it's um, an injury um, or um, is the awkward punching style of a grappler and, and Juliana just, did it just find a home? I mean, cause it, I, it didn't look like it should have to me. It, it was, I feel like I'm being an asshole here, but it was just, um, it wasn't the most technically impressive fight from either fighter. And I was I was a little bit disappointed because I consider Amanda Nunes to be one of one of the all time greats, male or female. So I just expected a little more out of her technically. And if the cardio wasn't there, I figure she would be so technically proficient that she could stay in her stance, pick pick apart, pick her apart if she had to. But if if she couldn't throw a hundred mile per hour fastball, she had to go to any any junk. Like she didn't have any other pitches, and everything she threw, Juliana hit out of the fucking park. Let's give Pena her credit, right? As loopy as her punches looked, she surprisingly had a very straight jab, which I think kind of threw Nunes off, where it's like, yeah, your loopy stuff, I could see. Then all of a sudden, the jab comes straight, and it's like she could not see that punch coming. Well, that's what I, I think you might be right. And that's why I say I don't want to shit on, on her performance, because there is this thing, right? When people break from, from natural punching mechanics, where you can't help but to watch it. You know, My, my wife has this weird herky-jerky style. And it looks like there's an extra twist to her right hand, and you're watching it while it's hit, while it's hitting you in the mouth, right? and that's everyone she goes with. Sometimes that those mechanics can occupy that part of the brain that thinks that you can anticipate trajectory and and, re, and react accordingly. So credit to Juliana Pena for not being overwhelmed by the moment. Overwhelmed by, I mean, there's no, it's not hype. Nunes is as real as it gets um from a uh, from a championship perspective but and she was in there with you know i say if you're in there with a bigger batter fighter it's your job to find a way to win and she did and she did you know she stayed game in the face of adversity in that first round um amanda nunez is a handful and then some uh, and you know she just she kept her composure and you know found that choke in the second round she was money with it and I think we saw inklings of this fight with Nunez when she fought Kat Zingano and Valentina Shevchenko twice, and even Chris Cyborg. 
where against Zingano, she was dominating round one. And then in round two and three, you just saw her technique and her form fall apart. And I think a lot of that came from just her spirit falling apart. And same thing with Shevchenko, where she won both of those fights because she created such a lead at the beginning that when she started falling apart at the end, it was still enough to win a decision. And then even against Cyborg, that was a short fight, so you didn't see her falling apart per se. But what you did see is when she was caught in a firefight, instead of blocking or defending or moving her head, she just started trading, right? Cyborg landed a couple punches and she's like, you want to do this? Let's just go. Let's, let's trade rights and see what happens. And her right landed before Chris Cyborg's did and she won. But it wasn't a pretty exchange and it wasn't like, from a technical perspective, a great fight to watch. And I remember thinking after that fight, like, you know, there's some signs there for both fighters where if somebody can do this to them again, they might end up getting knocked out because they're just going to throw caution and defense to the win and just swing and bang, as you call it, right? And you saw that in round two where she was just like, you want to go? You know, you hit me, I hit you. Let's see what happens. And she ended up on the wrong side of that this time. Yeah, well, my question is, where's her her very fundamental ability to work behind a jab and have some basic footwork? Reset, regroup, work behind a jab. Um, and 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 force maybe Pena to work a little more while she sort of recovers. I mean, there has to be that ability to do that. You have to have that in your game somewhere, unless you think you're that that physically talented that you are always going to run rough shot over over whoever you fight. And at that point, like that gets you out of that I'm a champion, I need to do championship stuff mindset. And that's what I said. That's why I said when I was disappointed in this fight, is like I didn't see championship shit from Amanda Nunes. And like she has I know she has that ability. I really do. And the same thing with when she when she fought Cyborg. Like Cyborg was working with Clarissa Shields and Clarissa was like, where where the fuck did your jab go? You threw it away. Cyborg, you just you just abandoned it. Like you did nothing but you you fought like a ballroom brawler, and then Nunes touched you up and you know, took a nap. A jab is a punch in boxing, and you're allowed to use it. If you have two feet, you don't just have to plant them. And I, I guess that yes, that is their style. But if you don't have a plan B, then I mean, you're a front runner and a first ball fastball hitter. You think everyone's going to throw 90, 90 mile an hour heat every time? Uh, no, you got to be ready for that change up with curveball, the you know the eighty-eight mile an hour slider with a little bit off it. And if you can't make those adjustments, someone else will. And even if women's MMA is is still a growing talent pool, it is improving. It is improving more and more each and every event. And if you aren't improving, um, the other people behind you, you know, some younger, hungrier fighters, they will, and they're going to be in your ass in a minute. So. Yeah, we're going to talk about that too later on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because like, the the Blanchfield and Miranda Maverick is a great a great fight where you can talk about some up and coming talent. I mean, both incredibly young and have I think both have of quite the ceiling. It reminds me of the fall of Fedor, where early fights you saw him working the jab, you saw him moving his feet, you saw him being clever, setting up traps, you saw him being slick. Right. And then eventually he just started falling in love with his right hand. And then the footwork disappeared, uh, all the traps disappeared, the jab disappeared, and it just became about spamming right hands. And I think the same thing with Amanda Nunes, where 
in spite of the stuff I mentioned before, where we saw inklings of her wilting, we saw improvements where against Raquel Pennington or against Jermaine Durandamy, where she showed footwork, she showed ring craft, you know, she showed some clever stuff. And then she destroyed Megan Anderson by just touching her with her right. And I think this was also coming for a while where she knew her right hand was just a death touch. And in this fight, you saw that where kind of like Fedor, where he had some some early losses or actually just one loss to Tsuyoshi Kosaka, which was um, based more on a cut. But he was going to be, I don't mean to cut you off, but he was getting embarrassed by Arlovsky before he found that death touch, right? He couldn't lay a finger on Arlovsky, and I call that a talent trap. You go become a victim of your own success because you find the shot that you always find. And people remember the knockout and the like, the meme that Arlovsky became. But it was it was a pretty um, exploitative performance by Arlovsky, exploiting some of the, the weaknesses and lack of, um, I guess, fundamental prowess or at least abandonment of fundamentals by, by Fedor. He was looking for that big shot. Nunez reminds me of that where she has Fedor's right hand and now she's like, that's it. And she, probably that affected her training where she's like, what do I need to do all this stuff for? I have the death touch in my right hand. Yeah, I think that's a very appropriate example. And I call that a talent trap. Same thing with Conor McGregor. Yeah, his left hand, right? And then like he stopped mixing things up. He started th- talking about his other worldly power. And um, you know, you start to believe your own hype and you become a victim of your own success. And you stop doing the little things that set up the big things. And you become a little bit easier to prepare for. And, you know, talent traps are a real thing. You know, you have success. And I say it all the time. I said, I, I don't want to be that coach um, that will hyperanalyze a situation even whenever you win. And I had a fighter win in 27 seconds. And I, I, I put off all criticism until, like, the, the beginning of next week. Like, I'm not going to say anything right now. Right? But he. There was some like just excess movement, throwing himself out of position, and then he just like turned on the left head kick and, and crushed the kid. It was pretty impressive. But relying solely on your physical gifts, even if they, the hardest thing is to correct someone when they are doing wrong shit or suboptimal shit, and it works for them. You know, eventually they're going to come up against someone that it doesn't work against. You can't tell me if Amanda Nunes didn't have a jab. Right, a really good jab and the ability to move a little bit. Well, she doesn't have to. Well, she needed to, and she didn't have it. And most fighters that are 26 professional fights into a career and are championship caliber have at least some semblance of a jab um, and can recover. I mean, but we weren't even we weren't even halfway through the fight. We're in the second round. You know, she's she's been five before against Felicia Spencer, I believe, right? right. Or, and Jermaine Deronomy. She was she went so she's gone five rounds before. Um, I'm not sure if something else with it was a hindrance or if she just overconfident in being able to find that right hand. But like, you can say what you want about um, about Juliana being she was what one and one in her last two before that fight. I think she was two and two in her last four going into that fight. So may, maybe Nunes went in overconfident, but you're a professional and you are a champion. Amanda Nunes is a professional and she's a champion. Do you want to give everyone their motherfucking Rocky moment? Like you want, I mean, we've, we've all seen it. 
man. Like, right? Apollo takes that fight seriously. There is no Rocky two, but he didn't. He coasted, and you know, you get what you got. You get a uh, just another great White Hope story. But hey, I mean, it was it was entertaining enough with Amanda Nunes and, and Juliana Pena. Like, hungry fighters are dangerous fighters, and if you let them grow a belief that they can win. Like they become even more dangerous. What you want to do is you want to take that hope away from them. You want to frustrate them right off the bat. But if they see you start to fold, if they see you start to fatigue, if they see a a break in technique, a lapse in fundamentals, if they see heavy breathing, and they still got something in the tank, and they're gonna come for it. They're gonna come for that fucking gold. They're gonna come for that belt. And you gotta have you gotta have something else. Rather than just your A game, you got to have a plan B, plan C, you know, and, and uh, my concern with Amanda Nunes is she's been so successful doing what she does that, that she that she did not. And you know, her, her camp's outstanding and that she had to have been prepared. So I don't know, maybe there's more to the story than I know, or maybe uh, maybe I need to give Juliana Payne more credit. And maybe she just um, stymied her and confused her and was able to to wear her out. As early as she did, and you know, and and find that joke. She found that jab like four or five times straight too. I mean, she just kept poking her in the face with it over and over and over. And you know, nothing can fatigue someone quite like frustration. So now let's talk Kai Kara France beating Cody Garbrandt. Talk us through this fight. Ah, man, that's a rough one. Um, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm a fan of. Both fighters. I know Cody going back to uh, his Pittsburgh. He's fighting at a Pittsburgh Fight Club. He's been on the card when I had um, Felder on some undercard or some cards in Philadelphia. Or excuse me, in Pittsburgh. And and I, I said before I knew that he was going to be a talent. And you know he's won what once since his nearly uh, picture perfect performance against Dominic Cruz. I think he's what lost five of his last six. He had a, a nice comeback performance against uh, a Sun Sal, but you know he's been uh, he's been beat up quite a bit since then. And Kai Francis is a guy that seems to be getting uh, better, and you know you start to understand how good Brandon Moreno uh, and Brandon Oival are, and those are his two losses in his last five. And then you start to understand that you know this kid at 28 years old might be making some noise in that division in the in the very near future. Not just because Garbrandt's a little bit chinny, um, and maybe not the fighter he was, but because Kai Car France has got has got some talent. He can punch, he can kick. But the story of this fight was um, the the overhand right landed perfectly at a time where Cody let he threw a kick while uh, Kai was breaking down that distance, and he was sort of. I call the technique a sunrise where you throw, not every jab you throw is meant to land. Sometimes you throw that, right? Sometimes you throw that jab at the chest or even at the collarbone or throat where our tendency to protect the more vulnerable portion of our body is to put our chin down to protect. And that line of sight shifts from eye to eye or eye to shoulders down below to like chest or abdomen. And when you do that and you put that overhand right and you've already committed your body to that overhand right as you're throwing that throwaway jab. And then you twist and turn on that overhand right. And sometimes I, I like to see good boxers put a left hook behind it like uh, like Canelo does. Um, but 
uh, maybe not as, as often in MMA, but that, that right, that overhand right can do some damage. That sunrise shot um, hit Garbrandt right on, right on the chin. And it, it, it's weird because sometimes you'll see Cody reach and do like a, a lead hand parry against the, against the jab. And I'm not sure if that's, if there's something he's, he's meaning to do, like sometimes you'll see a cross hand parry where you'll step off hard to the right against an orthodox fighter and come back with the right hand. But if you do a cross hand parry and you stay on center line where you don't have that footwork, you're, you have nothing to defend the right hand with. And yeah, it looked like he was throwing that, that kick. Um, but he still was sort of reaching. It looked to me like a cross hand parry and he got fucking blasted with that, that overhand, right? I don't like him at 125 pounds either. I really don't. I think uh, it takes away his, his speed advantage, the weight cut. You, you and I saw. He looked terrible. He looked, and he looked like it, one of those those age enhanced photos that the the Russians are using. <laughs> when you sent me that photo, I shared it on Twitter and sent it to some people on DM, and a bunch of people just from that photo ended up betting on Kaikar France. Yeah, no, I, that's what I, I, I think I texted you back. I would, <laughs> I would, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't bet, but if I were a betting man, this, th- I think this, this says it all. Plus he, he seemed to slur a little bit and I don't know if that's from any concussive trauma and I haven't, I haven't spoken to him or even like heard him on, on video or presser that much. I just, I mean, um, I don't really don't care to, to listen to Cody all that much. You know, no offense to him, but, <laughs> but but it's, it's, he doesn't doesn't say a lot of the things I like to hear. Um, but when I did hear him speak, when he was getting in that shit talk back and forth with um, with Sean O'Malley, he seemed to be slurring a little bit, and that was some cause for concern. And then every everybody likes to blame that on the weight cut as well. But I mean, weight cuts are one thing. And I've been around college wrestling and high school wrestling for a long, long time. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone slur from a weight cut. Now everyone's saying that that's that's the fucking norm here in MMA. And I'm wondering, hey, you guys know I used to do weight cuts at the highest level. You know, Paul, Paul Felder, um, Gabriel Rosado. I've done Jason Sosa. I've done weight, comp, weight cuts for world champions. I, I've never heard them fucking slur guys. So you start to wonder if maybe there's, there's more to it. And then you just didn't pass the eye test. So if you're a gambling man, I think the money needed to be on, on Kai Car France. I think his losses at Bantamweight took his confidence and then COVID took his cardio and speed and the weight cut just took the rest. Yeah, very like very likely. Now let's talk about Sean O'Malley beating Raleigh and Paiva. What did Paiva do well in this fight and what didn't he do well in this fight? Well first things first, let me say this. Uh this was really good matchmaking. Like Paiva is just good enough to really make O'Malley look good. And it's a great developmental fight for O'Malley. Um, getting him out in the, in the manner that he did. But but what did Piva do well? Like, decent pressure, um, get, like defensively responsible. He wasn't all over the place. Um, he's he's a good fighter who is tailor made for for someone like Sean O'Malley, um, and he has a tendency to lead with his face a little bit. A long rangy striker like O'Malley is is like I said. He's tailor-made for O'Malley, but he did a pretty good job of, um, you know, he threw his right hand um, and he set some stuff up. O'Malley being a long fighter who his punch selection 
especially in the finishing sequence, was absolutely outstanding. W- uh, was doing a good job of setting up his shots um, and doing something similar to, similar to Kai Car France, where he found that 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 throwaway jab and he immediately put the overhand right behind it. And you could see that he was setting it up. He was working high and low, and he just missed with the overhand right. Um, prior to the overhand right, I think that dropped Pivot. So, you know, credit to O'Malley to continue to evolve. And I give O'Malley some shit, right? Like I did on, on multiple episodes, I believe. Um, but he is he is an excellent striker whose whose fight IQ is pretty high. And his fight IQ and punch selection, strike selection when he has someone hurt is about as good as I've ever seen from a decision-making perspective where he's letting six, seven, eight shots go, uppercut hooks, back to straights, little shifts off where he just switches his hip, comes back with double left hands right to the fucking ear. And he just, you know, his, his ability to select strikes as part of his finishing sequence, um, they're as fun to watch as they are fundamentally sound. And that's, that was the story of how O'Malley ended the fight. But credit to Paiva from having for having good footwork moving forward. Um, he w- wasn't as easily hit as I thought he would be, um, but still the length of O'Malley and just setting up and investing into placements with his jab and setting up that overhand right was the the game changer it needed to be for him. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. Now let's talk Dominic Cruz. Being in a regular prelim fight, not even the headliner against Pedro Munoz. Round one, Munoz almost put him away. Tell us how that happened and what Cruz did to adjust and just overall what Cruz is doing to adjust as he ages. Well, he, he darted it. Cruz darted in, right? And then he, got, he ran into a straight left, which is really was really a jab from a real stiff punching Pedro Munoz. And Munoz can punch. He's heavy-handed. But he, he's been having some trouble. I think he lost like three or four. Only win coming against Jimmy Rivera, who like, Rivera is an excellent fighter in himself. So like, how, how this fight was going to unfold was going to be determined by like, how much of that movement and agility and timing did Dominic Cruz still have. And when he ran into that shot early, I think we were all really, really nervous that he didn't have it anymore. Right. But as a testament to Dominic Cruz being in the game as long as he has, um, he's one of those guys that when when his feet don't fail him, when his knees don't fail him, um, he is tricky and crafty. And even though like fundamentally, some of the stuff that he does, he does is, is just relatively absurd from like a basics uh, perspective. They, it really works for him. Um, and even though it didn't in the first round, his many adjustments changed the changed the course of the fight. You know, he his longer, straighter shots got him back into the fight. 
And, you know, Munoz, who's really good at, at pressuring, didn't pressure enough. Um, and he seemed content to give Cruz the space to work in and out and never really found like, another big shot. And I think Cruz was also a little bit more defensively disciplined. And even though when he throws like wild combinations, which, which Cruz has a tendency to do while his hands are always shifting like to his hips, he's throwing three and four strikes. He was doing so at off angle a little more um, or getting out after the third or fourth rather than being planted and allowing Pedro to get off like some of, some of his power shots. After he got dropped also, he stopped switching stances because he got dropped as he was darting in with a stance switch. And I think Munoz was timing that. He was waiting for that. And then after that moment, other than like little reset steps that Dominic Cruz is known to do, he fought the rest of the fight orthodox and from longer out where he relied on, to your point, his reach advantage and just hit him at the end of his punches. And also, I think we both talked about this in this fight, but also I think as he's aging, he's putting a little bit more pepper on his shots. He knows he can't move around as much as he used to, so he better hit guys harder than he used to, right? For sure. He was doing that. He, he was getting longer with some of his shots, but then he would, he would really turn on some. And then he wouldn't just sort of, he wouldn't stop at the end of a combination and allow Pedro to go back on offense. He then, after he would either miss or knowing that he's a little bit out of position, then he would sort of shift and reset his feet. And he'd also hit, he'd also do that little pull without necessarily having to counter. He would drop and pull to get you to swing and miss. And then he would pivot and shift out rather than come back knowing that his Either his timing and his reflexes weren't perfect, and he'd rather get in a better position than punch from a decent position um, like without without his feet fully under him or allowing uh, Munoz the ability to just sort of shift his hips and reposition and get back on offense. Forced him to reset. It didn't allow Munoz to pressure him, cut him off, put him against the cage, um, and it allowed for, for Dominic Cruz to continue to reset and work from space. Though, I think we also discussed this, that without that power and the ability to dominate on the ground, Cruz is limited in how far he can go at bantamweight. Like, he is hitting harder, but not enough to put people away. He can take people down, but he's not somebody who can take people down and hold people down. And so, not being a finisher in this division, I think, really is a liability now, especially because bantamweight is by far the toughest division in MMA. But I'd love to see him fight Aldo in a Legends fight. So would I. So would I. I, I really would. Um, you know, because you think if he can stay in it, he might be able to squeeze out at least the last two rounds, right? Because Aldo tends to gas. And, um, but Aldo can also cut off. I, I would like to see that fight. I'd, I think it'd be a fun one. I think it'd be a great Legends fight, and I think from uh, I think I think you have a, a career as a matchmaker. That'd be a good one to see. Some of the hits on on Sherdog were were posting on the forum asking if Dominic Cruz was the best point fighter ever, and they were doing it like as a troll. But like, like that's a good question. Like, imagine if Dominic Cruz was heavy handed. He's not, but 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 imagine if he was. And at twenty four and three, and what is a, a a very, very talented 135-pound division. Bantamweight's a fucking good. 
And like, like you said, they, they're continuing to hit harder and harder at the smaller weight classes. So, you know, I mean, you, you might be able to, you might call it a troll or a bit of a slight on Dominic Cruz, but he might be the best point fighter ever because he can mix in um, his evasive footwork. He can, he can throw enough unorthodox punches. He can dart in and out and he's got that, that Neo footwork. Um, and he's got, uh, and he'll mix up his punches and his kicks, but also his well-timed takedowns and he may not finish it, but he's going to make you look silly. Um, unless you have, unless you have the ability to like Henry Cejudo, cut him off, pressured him, didn't give him room to work. Cody Garbrandt, a mashup class in, in counter footwork. If you watch that fight that he had against, um, against Dominic Cruz. So, you know, and, and there's not a whole lot of people that, that have that. So, you know, I guess the, the hope is that at 36, um, his, his feet start to fail him a little more often. Um, and, or, you know, age catches up with him, um, or, or you put him away because you know, it's going to be tough to win a decision against Dom. Now let's talk about an early prelim fight between Aaron Blanchfield versus Miranda Maverick at women's flyweight a fight with top prospects. And in Maverick, someone many thought would challenge Shevchenko someday. Prospect fights are always interesting, especially in a division that's still emerging. But this fight also was a story about adjusting to a new camp and about coaches getting to know their fighters. First, let's talk about how good Blanchfield looked before we talk about Maverick and the drama in her corner. Jason? Iron Blanchfield looked outstanding. She really did. She looked like a, a top tier talent. Her wrestling, a great, really. Um, her top position and top control, really, really good. Um, she's only got one one loss via split decision, and I, I tried to find that fight, but I got sort of caught up in uh, like uh, uh, I forget. The, I was one of Sean O'Malley's older fights, and like I try not to watch too too much of them, but I'm starting to buy the hype a little bit, a little bit, but. Um, but I do want to check out that fight that she lost and see, um, see the talent level of, of the woman that beat her. I think it was Tracy Cortez. And I think Blanchfield was 19. Yeah. She's 22 years old and her wrestling is that good. Like her wrestling looks like legit high school level wrestling from like a legit high school wrestler. So I don't know what her, her wrestling pedigree is, but her transitions from like singles to doubles, wrist control from that top position. I even think I saw like a bit of a Navy spower ride, hanging heavy, forcing the bottom, the, the bottom fighter, Miranda Maverick, to work. Um, it was excellent. It was really, really good. And she controlled the wrist the entire time. She put heavy pressure on it, made it difficult for a very, very strong, very skilled fighter in Miranda Maverick the entire time she was on the mat with her. And it was, it was a really, really impressive performance. Yeah, and the person who beat her when she was 19, Tracy Cortez, also fights in the UFC. And starting from Dana White's contenders, she's been undefeated. So she fought one time in contenders, and then she's fought three times in the UFC. And she even beat Maria Agapova, who is really good. Oh, so she's a gamer. She lost a split decision as a high, as a 19-year-old. As a teenager. Right? <laughs> a teenager. I'm still spraying graffiti. As a 19 year old, like <laughs> trying to sneak into bars and she's, she's in there losing a splitter to, uh, to top tier talent. So, and I think, I think that's what Blanchfield is. The, 
the camp changed to elevation. I don't, I don't, I don't know what prompted that because I thought she, I thought Miranda Maverick won the fight against Macy Barber. Like, that was my opinion. Yeah, I think that's why they kept saying it was controversial because most people who watched it felt she won. I did, uh, and I, I felt like I watched it pretty closely. And so, did she make the switch to that camp after? Yes, after that fight. It was, it was interesting because I don't think um, I don't think Maverick had necessarily a bad performance. I think the credit has to go to Blanchfield for just being the superior grappler, um, someone who is stronger than she looks, and she she was able to deal with the the, the strength and physicality um, of Miranda Maverick. I don't want to say with relative ease, but she made it look pretty easy. I mean, she dominated the, every grappling exchange and. You know, she ate some shots. I mean, Miranda Maverick had that. She fight from the southpaw stance. She has that little Nassim Hamed like tornado left hand where she'll throw that up jab, uppercut when she'll walk in with that left. But she doesn't have the ability to, um, I guess, like the body dexterity. She's a little bit too too muscled, um, and she didn't really hit anything off it. And uh, she landed it once or twice, but whenever she went back to it. Blanchfield started to like crash that distance and right once they got tangled up uh, I think Miranda had a, like a weak underhook and you saw that wizard toss or the uh, Uchimata from uh, from Blanchfield and then she'd get that top position and she'd just she'd just like build a nest there the entire time. Now you could tell in the corner that Elliot Marshall did not know how to coach Maverick yet by round three you could tell Maverick no longer trusted her corner and fought like she was in this alone. She didn't really follow the instructions. She was just like, I don't know if these people can get me the victory. I'm just going to do what I think is best. Then after the fight, I felt like my read of the situation was right when she told Marshall to get away from her, right? And so we talked about this uh, off air, but what did you think about that corner drama with Maverick and her new team and adjusting and trying to coach a new fighter? Uh, well, it's always tough to, uh, to understand like, psychosocial dynamics, right? Especially like how, how they interacted prior. Um, if there was a um, building a bond takes time, but sometimes people just, people just don't mesh. What I can, what I can speak to because I, I witnessed it was, Elliot Marshall seemed like an ex-fighter who was still of the fight mindset that he is a fighter while he was coaching. He said things. His, his coaching instruction was not bad. It wasn't. It was wasn't terrible, but it was. It was almost said in a manner where he knows the camera is on him, and you can sense that. You see it. I see it. You know, this motherfucker's playing to the camera, not to communicate with his fighter. And he said he said the right things. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, well, he is growing and developing a motivational speaking career. So that is the thing that he is trying to promote and grow. Oh, fuck me running, man. What uh, what a bad time to try that shtick. Fuck. Because <laughs> uh, that's how it came off. I didn't know that. Because <laughs> that's, exactly that's how exactly how it came off. He sounded like a, uh, a bad Tony Robbins ripoff. And... <laughs> I think what Miranda Maverick wanted, and I don't want to speak to her, her, I can't get in her brain, but I, her response seemed to me like she wasn't buying it. No, she looked even more upset after round two, after that cornering. Yeah, and a little slap, 
And yes, sir. Like, how do you feel? How do you feel? <laughs> are you, are you demanding she call you sir in between, between rounds? Like, fuck off with that, man. You know, I get that you want to ask how your fighter feels, but how about, and if you at, tell them to breathe and to calm down, but you might want a little bit less of an animated tone so it doesn't seem like you're performative uh, to the, the camera that's behind you. Uh, and it, it, how do I say this? You can fake the hype and you can, you can fake the energy, but you can't fake concern. Like a fighter's gonna, gonna feel that, you know? They, they sense it. And like, I, I thought that there was, it seemed like he was inauthentic, at least from a concern for his fighter. Like he didn't want to reach her. It seemed like a, he wanted to say things that were good commercial clips for his, what is now, I guess, a budding public speaking career. Get the fuck out of here with that. I, mean, I can't believe it that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now that you mentioned it, maybe that is a conflict of interest, right? When you're trying to be a motivational speaker and a coach at the same time, then yeah, there is some overlap, but then maybe some of that type of mentality and self-help crosses over to your coaching too much because you really buy into this shit. And instead of reading what your specific fighter needs, you're just rote. You're just automatically delivering these cliches that you've been practicing so much. You know, you do what you practice and maybe that's a hard time, especially with a camera there, not to just go on autopilot and just start doing self-help stuff. Well, that, that's how it seemed to me. And like I said, I don't know. I'm not in their camp. I'm not part of their social dynamic. Um, but it, it just from uh, Miranda Maverick's body language, it seemed like she's someone, and I don't know her, but she seems like she's someone you're not going to reach with that Tony Robbins shit. I don't think you're going to reach her that way. Um, and she had a very, very difficult task uh, in Aaron Blanchfield. I can't imagine, like, there's, there's a lot of uh, female 125ers that Miranda Maverick just doesn't physically overwhelm, right? And she couldn't do that with Blanchfield. Blanchfield was too game. Um, she was too composed. She got the fight where she wanted it. And so there needed to be some, some problem solving. And I don't think that rah-rah shit was what Miranda Maverick was looking for, wanted, or needed. And I was trying to pay attention to what, uh, what Marshall was saying, but it was a little bit distracting because it almost seemed like even though she was looking straight ahead, it almost like it was the straight ahead side eye. Like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Yeah. Let me give you some background information that might fill the rest of this out for you. Miranda Maverick graduated with honors majoring in psychology and sociology, and she's in the middle of a PhD in organizational psychology. So you're pulling motivational self-help stuff on a psychology, sociology PhD candidate, right? What a fool's errand that is. She had to see right through it. That's got to be the worst type of person to pull that on, right? Tony Robbins stuff on a psychology PhD candidate. She had to see right through it. I love, oh man, I love, we got to get her on here. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to fuck her camp. I don't want to, I don't want to fuck her camp up, <laughs> but I would, I would love to ask her. Right? That's something that, that I would want to know. I mean, wow. She's a very cerebral person and fighter, right? So that's how you got to approach her. Yeah. And it didn't seem like any of that was, was working on her. It seemed like that was the, the it was antithetical to, to her personality type because there wasn't much of a response. And like the, the, 
hit Marshall saying, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Like, I'm like, is he calling her, sir? Or is he demanding that she respond in the affirmative, finishing with a sir? Because fuck you, man. Like, <laughs> get the fuck out of here with that. And that was, that was my take on it. It looked like a bad first date, right? And maybe that is an analogy to this because <laughs> this is your first date with a new camp and it didn't go so well. Yeah, maybe you thought it was going to until you went on that, that road trip together and you realized you hate each other. <laughs> you know, sometimes, cause, cause sometimes it can seem like it's great until you get a little bit of adversity. You get locked in the car and uh, well, someone has an upset stomach and you realize like you both gross each other out. I think Maverick is the type of person who could deal with a loss, but I think what was bothering her was just like, she didn't feel like she had a corner with her. She seemed like body language and how she was reacting, like somebody who felt like she was in this alone. And I think that's what really bothered her. That's, and that is how it appeared. Like suspending all bias. That is exactly how it appeared. Because I watched and I tried, because I heard, I got your text from you and I was focused on him saying dumb shit in the corner and he didn't really say dumb shit. It was sort of how he said it. And then the yes, sir, the yes, sir. From a technical aspect, it was, it wasn't, it didn't strike me as piss poor. Um, and he, he, but it seemed, it seemed cliched and a little hackneyed at times, but, um, I think what she wanted was an advocate who was going to help her problem solve. And, Cause she got in there cause I, she didn't, I didn't, I really don't feel like she lost a Macy Barber fight. So she would have been streaking the multiple fights for that, at least four or five. So she gets in there with Barber and then she takes, she loses the split. So she's someone who has the physical tools and I don't say that there's hype behind her, but there's, there's, um, there's the thought that, that she's an eventual world champion at 24 years old. She's, she's got the good. She can be, she can be pretty outstanding. I think so. Rather than someone who is going to hitch their wagon to her physical abilities and make a name for their coaching, how about you make her better? And it didn't seem like an extension of improving Miranda Maverick, the fighter. It seemed like a fucking infomercial for her corner. <laughs> and that's where, that's where they lost me. And I, uh, you know, say what you will, I got some, some personality faults, but. I, I usually can read the room with my fighter, and I, I, I didn't see, see Marshall quite doing the same in um, any capacity, really. All right. I think that's it for this fight study. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Check out all our other shows and see you all next time. See you, folks.